Welcome to Book to Where Two Guys Tell You About the Books They're Reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. This week we are reviewing something that I, I have to say is a little different um, for us. And not that we don't occasionally wander into the lighthearted or, or funny, um, but earlier Rob was giving me a little bit of a rundown of some of the books we've reviewed this year, and none of them seem really that lighthearted or, or funny. So uh, again, a little bit of a departure for us. Uh, this week, Anxious People by Frederick Bachman. Um, I, this was done at my request. Um, <clears throat> I had listened to two different audiobooks by, uh, Frederick Bachman previously. I found them very enjoyable, very endearing. And I guess over the course of the next, you know, 40 minutes or so, we're going to find out if, uh, if this one, uh, stood up to those, if Rob, if his, if his cold little heart was warmed, like, like mine has been previously by, <laughs> by Bachman's novels, um, but I guess uh, I guess first we should probably tell you a little bit about the guy. <laughs> you said a little bit of a departure, and you couldn't see it because we don't see each other when we record this. But my eye—you didn't see my eyes get like wide. Like that's an understatement. Yeah, no um, <clears throat> yeah. So here's the author for Frederick Bachman. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of A Man Called Ove. My grandmother asked me to tell you she's sorry. Britt Marie was here. Bear da- Bear Town. Excuse me. Us Against You, and two novellas. Uh, one's called And Every Morning the Way Home Gets Longer and Longer, and the other one is The Deal of a Lifetime, as well as one work of nonfiction, Things My Son Needs to Know About the World. His books are published in more than 40 countries. His next novel, Anxious People, which is what we're talking about now, will slash has been published in September 2020. He lives in Stockholm, Sweden, with his wife and two children. Who do you think, like, do you think the author has control over the author author bio at Amazon? I, I'm not talking about, like, somebody who's, like, kind of self-publishing stuff, but, like, someone like this, whose books are published in 40 countries. Who do you think is responsible for it being December 1st and nobody has updated this bio? Yeah, that's kind of weird. I wonder if it's just, like, a low priority. Like, they don't think about changing it until the next book is in production or something. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe we should get a publisher on here one day. We can drill them about all the dumb shit that we've been complaining about for a decade. Dude, that is a fucking brilliant idea, but I guarantee you (laughs) it would be the first time that a publisher actually, or like a guest actually just cuts off Skype in the middle of a, I I guarantee you we would lose that person. That's well, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's the first time for everything. Anyway. Yeah. Well, listen, we should totally try it because, yeah, I'm okay with that that being a first-time thing. I I don't detest publishers, but I just imagine it'd start off really normal, like, talking about the process, and then it would turn into things like, how exactly are these fucking synopses written? Right. Like, like, is this from somebody who reads the book? And they'll be like, wow, wow. Anyway. Livius is like, I have a question. How dare you? Exactly. All right. (laughs) Um, Speaking of how synopses are written... Uh, here's uh, here's one of the lengthier ones this year. From the number one New York Times bestselling author of A Man Called Oove comes a charming, poignant novel about a crime that never took place. A would-be bank robber who disappears into thin air and eight extremely anxious strangers who find they have more in common than they ever imagined. 
Looking at real estate isn't usually a life or death situation, but an apartment open house becomes just that when a failed bank robber bursts in and takes a group of strangers hostage. The captives include a recently retired couple who relentlessly hunt down fixer-uppers to avoid the painful truth that they can't fix their own marriage. There's a wealthy bank director who has been too busy to care about anyone else and a young couple who are about to have their first child but can't seem to agree on anything, from where they want to live to how they met in the first place. Add to the mix an 87-year-old woman who has lived long enough not to be afraid of someone waving a gun in her face, a flustered but still ready-to-make-a-deal real estate agent, and a mystery man who has locked himself in the apartment's only bathroom, and you've got the worst group of hostages in the world. Each of them carries a lifetime of grievances, hurts, secrets, and passions that are ready to boil over. None of them is entirely who they appear to be, and all of them, the bank robber included, desperately crave some sort of rescue. As the authorities and the media surround the premises, these reluctant allies will reveal surprising truths about themselves and set in motion a chain of events so unexpected that even they can hardly explain what happens next. I'm going to leave the... No, I'm not, because I really want to talk about this. Rich with Frederick Bachman's pitch-perfect dialogue and an unparalleled understanding of human nature. This, this was said by Shelf Awareness, whoever that is. Anxious People is an ingeniously constructed story about the enduring power of friendship, forgiveness, and hope, the things that save us, even in the most anxious times. Um, I, I feel like this is absolutely one of those synopses that um, is a it's it's enticing someone in and maybe exaggerating some parts or, or adding more s- significance to things than necessarily is warranted when you actually read the story. Um, but overall... I think it does a good job of summing things up. It does manage to forget two of the main characters in this book, <laughs> which is a little odd. And and we'll uh, we'll get into that, I, I guess. Um, yeah, I also feel like it's like I think there are parts of this book that are a little on the on the darker side, but I feel like the synopsis makes it seem much darker than it is. Uh, well, that'll be interesting to talk about because um, I, I don't I don't necessarily agree with you. All right, excellent. I kind of like it when when it, it makes it more <laughs> fun to talk about books when we're not just each like nodding at what the other one's saying. Right. So um, I, I will say that um, that last paragraph is a little bit, and I'm going to be a little. Uh, it's a little dick sucky. Um, Wow. Pitch perfect dialogue, unparalleled understanding of human nature, ingeniously constructed story. Um it's a little it's a little much. Maybe that's how they talk I, in Sweden and like it's, it's, it's lost in <laughs> translation or something. Can we can we let's start there. So um I, I think the I you know, I didn't even notice the ingeniously constructed story because that is actually part of the synopsis and not like a quote from someone else. Right. So the part that's a quote is <laughs> Pitch perfect dialogue and unparalleled understanding of human nature. Now, <clears throat> because Rob and I had a brief conversation beforehand, there's a, there's a part of that I think he's going to take exception to. Um, and there's one part in there that I am going to champion as, as hard as I can through, through, the course, <laughs> through the course of this review. So um, I feel Rob is going to have issues with the pitch perfect dialogue. Um, and, and although I'm not defending that part, I do think that his understanding of human nature, and I had not read the synopsis and had not read that blurb, 
Um, but one of the the mental notes I made to talk about is how well I feel that Frederick Bachman understands the relationships between people. And I think that that would fit into human nature. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and I don't know if I'm going to actually take issue with that specifically because, uh, and we'll, we'll get into actually explaining a little bit more deeply the plot in a moment. Um, I will just kind of say in response to what Livia's saying, I don't know if I, uh, unparalleled is a little bit much. I think that he has a good understanding of human nature. Um, so that it's that's not what I take issue with, but it's what he does with that understanding that um, maybe I have a little bit more to say about. All right. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we could start it off at the beginning, but I, I think the synopsis does a pretty good job of, of this. Um, we're, we're introduced um, in, an, in an odd and perhaps awkward way um, to a situation where there's a bank robber who has tried to rob a bank only apparently. And I, this again, must be a Swedish thing, right? Cashless banks. That's news to me. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I I would have, it it would, how do I say this? It's odd to me because a bank keeps your money, right? And I know they do other things, but primarily that's what a bank does, right? Like you go there, you cash your checks or you get a money order of some sort. And in order to do that, you have to give them cash. So the, the concept of a cashless bank is a little odd to me. Clearly a little odd to the bank robber who also didn't expect that they were going into um, a bank that had no money. Thinking about it, I, I have a bank that's an online only bank. And so kind of by default is cashless because it doesn't have any physical locations, but it's cashless because it doesn't have physical locations. <laughs> I wonder, um, you should try and rob that bank and see what happens. Uh, it's not high on my, I, I'm doing okay. You, right just now. Email, not, you just email them and you're like, give me, I just, give me, give me all your, all the money. I just dropped off the rent today. So, uh, I'm good. But, um, yeah. So, um, our, our bank robber, I, I was almost going to say protagonist, but I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Uh, the bank robber tries to rob a cashless bank. It doesn't go in their favor. And um, at in the in the course of running away from the bank after this failed robbery, uh, you know, to try and avoid getting caught by the police, they basically run up the they run in through the, the first available unlocked door, which takes them into an apartment building and kind of corrals them up a staircase to. Um, the first open door they find, which happens to be open because it's an apartment that's having a viewing because it is for sale. Pretty quickly, we're intertwined with a little bit of a backstory from 10 years ago, um, which does, you know, come back um, to the modern, to, to the today story um, more frequently than I expected, if I'm being honest. Sweet Jesus. Uh, and there's a uh, a man who is uh, who is about to take his life um, by jumping from a bridge, and a young man who tries to stop him rather unsuccessfully. Yeah. So, um, I'm just going to carry on with plot before I start making commentary about some of the finer things. We can go back and talk about the way the story's told. Um, but yeah, like so, one thing I'll 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 mention structurally is that the plot does jump back and forth through time um between 
you know, the events of people's lives, but primarily, you know, their li- like uh, the the lives of people who interacted with this um, this suicide, and um, the present are kind of like the primary, uh, I think, storylines. And um, so, yeah, early on, there's there's a suicide. The man who kills himself had um, lost all of his money. In um, the housing crisis, I think of the late two thousands is what they didn't say specifically, but I'm assuming that that's what that's referring to. Um, they made put all their money in investments and were were assured that it was um, like it's failed, like foolproof, like there's no like there was no risk, basically. And then they lost all their money, and the bank said you shouldn't have given them the money. You're out of luck. And then despondent, the guy decided to jump off a bridge. And he did successfully jump off that bridge and die. Yes. Um, We'll talk a little bit about characters and and maybe some story. But the thing that struck me, and I don't know, did you ever read like, like kids mysteries when you were, when you were a kid? You mean like um, Hardy Boys stories that always take place in caves? No, um, I can't think of a good example. Well, I... I think they were called like 10 minute mysteries or something was, was something mm-hmm. that, that I read um, when I was a kid. And a lot of them were, were you know, I, th- I think the, the, the name for it is like a, like a locked room mystery. Oh yeah. Where, mm-hmm. so th- this book reminded me of that, right? Because we're, we, we I talked described about it. it taking place in the now. Go ahead. Sorry. I just, I described it to someone that way. Exactly. So I agree with you. Yep. And um, the reason I say that is because we, we go back and forth, as Rob mentioned, to the, 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 the gentleman who commits suicide on the bridge. But in the course of this day, we go back and forth between the police interviewing the hostages after the fact and the events of the apartment. But what we find out pretty quickly through the interviews, which happen after this hostage situation has, uh, has been resolved, is that they did not catch the bank robber, although it appears that... Uh, the bank robber could not have escaped the apartment. Is that a fair way to put it? Right. Yeah. There's no, based on what the police know, they can't figure out how the, they did not find the bank robber. Yeah. So essentially we're looking at, uh, at two cops, uh, Jim and, and Jack, both, uh, both policemen and Jim is uh, Jack's father. Uh, and there's a, a lot of relationship. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of relationship stuff happening there. Jim being kind of the old school doesn't really get the new way of doing things. Uh, Jack being on top of technology and all the new techniques and super hardworking to make his name a name for himself. And as uh, you know, fathers and sons do from time to time. Uh, it's not the smoothest of of relationships. So most of what we see from them is um, them trying to figure out what happened and where the bank robber might be. Um, and we see most of that through a series of interviews with all of the hostages from the apartment. Yeah. And this is kind of a strange book to talk about because of the way that it jumps around, but also just kind of the, I'm going to say in vague terms right now, like the way that it's told. But um, so, so the primary, the most time we spend in the book is with, the cast of characters that is at the apartment when the bank robber shows up, um, I'd say that the majority of, of our reading is what's going on with those characters. And then the cops are kind of like the secondary, the B plot kind of more or less. Um, and so there, there's a handful of people 
and and it, they were kind of mentioned in the synopsis, but I'll go over a little bit. So there's a uh, there's a character named Zara who is a bank executive, um, and she's really just kind of cold and, and and bitchy. Um, there there's a married couple, uh, Roe and Julia. Uh, there it's it's two women who are like younger. I, I had them kind of mentally pegged in like probably like their late twenties, early thirties, something like that. Uh, of the two, uh, Julia is pregnant, so they're they're expecting a child, and and essentially they're looking for an apartment to uh, to establish as their home for the the family. Roger and Annalena are the the retired couple who um, basically in the synopsis it says they hunt down fixer uppers because they can't fix their own marriage, so they're like the fussy annoying older people in the group uh there is the person who's hiding in the bathroom which i'm sure we'll talk about at least a little bit estelle is the old woman that's mentioned and she's probably one of my more favorite characters because she's kind of written in that way that she's old enough to like stop caring about a bunch of shit and just kind of you know be cool mm-hmm. um and and the bank robber, and then obviously there's more characters than that, but that's really like the cast that we see primarily in the uh, in the apartment situation. Yeah, as Rob said, that's where we spend um, the majority of our time. But we do um, from time to time, and not oddly enough, not in all of them. So in some of them, they kind of tell their their maybe their origin story, but in um, in one particular case, and I want to focus uh, just a little bit on um, Zara, who is the bank executive. And my favorite character, because she clearly just tells people what's on her mind and, and not ever in, in the nicest way. But she makes for some of the more entertaining um, conversations in this uh, book. But she gets a backstory that's a little more fleshed out through visits with uh, with her psychiatrist, Nadia. So we do go back and actually see um, narrated scenes of their of uh, some of their uh, um, sessions. Um, but for the most part, almost everybody else is, you know, we, we learn about them through their conversations with other hostages in the apartment. Um, the worst hostages ever, which really I, I found just really amusing. So that we have a bank robber and the bank robber, obviously not that good at, uh, at bank robbing. But these hostages, man, are, uh, are, are on another level for sure. That's that's the that's the setup. And basically what goes down is there's the the bulk of the story is told of what's happening in the apartment when the bank robber shows up. Mixed in is the police interviews trying to figure out after the fact, hey, what really went down? Um, and then there's, you know, people's past kind of history sprinkled in for good measure. But the it, it's really written as a like Livia said, like a locked room mystery, like you don't know. um how everything worked out the way it did because you're, you're learning obviously that you know the police you learn early on the police don't know where the bank robber is um and uh the the worst um hostages in the world is um is is kind of instrumental to not necessarily preventing the cops from knowing what's going on but they're definitely not helping much um if anything like they're they're as much good as as bad when they're they're trying to share information with the police um and so as time goes on we just kind of see how it all plays out like a little bit at a time and it's i would say if there's one thing that i would note about this book is that the relief the the way that information is revealed is is very measured 
and um, pieces fit together very snugly. Yes, yes, I would have to, um, I would have to agree with uh, with everything that Rob said. I believe this is where the disagreements are going to start, though. I just have a feeling. <laughs> Cue fisticuffs. <laughs> That's right. There would be no fisticuffs. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious. I, I guess. I'm curious to get what you don't like about the book. So I think you've touched on what you did like, and, and I kind of alluded to it, but I, I'm curious where the challenges are. Here's what I'll say. Um, I, I normally don't want to spoil ratings, but um, this is the biggest split we've had pro- this year. I'm, I'm certain of it. Right. And I'm pretty sure that, that we could probably go back a full another year and not find a split quite this great. So I'm really curious, uh, what is it you didn't like about this book? So before I go into anything that sounds like a criticism, I'm going to say up front that this absolutely comes down to a matter of taste. And sometimes things just aren't necessarily for you. So this is in no way an indictment of the author, who I think actually did a wonderful job of telling a story. Um, this is more of a Rob just didn't really care for X, Y, Z. Um, but I will acknowledge that probably the majority of people who read this book would really enjoy it. So I want to say that right up front. Um, I, and then in general, I just want to make an observation that the way that the book was narrated was one of the things that I really just didn't gel with too much. And it's, it's told, I kept thinking that this should be a TV show rather than a book. Um, it's told where like the narrator, there's a narrator who's explaining what's going on. So there's a, it's a, it's a third person. It's an omni- omniscient narrator telling you the reader what's happening for the most part. Um, but in a really conversational way. Um, and especially in the beginning of the book, the the narration is prone to just an absurd amount of, of tangents and digressions that really ground at me. So like if there was something that started me off on the wrong foot, it was the fact that like, so if I was telling you that Livius did a podcast, I'd be like, Oh, you know, Livius, he's a, you know, he's a, an American male and he does this podcast where he reads books, but he doesn't read all books. He obviously doesn't read romance because who would read romance? And then like, it would go down a tangent like that, but very heavily at the beginning of the book, which really, really ground at me. I know, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and I, I, I can see, um, I can see that I can understand that. So <laughs> again, uh, like that's why I stressed at first that it's absolutely a matter of taste. And, um, but something like that, I could see either being more measured, um, because it changes over time. I think as the story goes on, that tendency to to digress goes away or at least like is much more reined in. Um, and, and so, and I don't really have a, like a plot or a story explanation for why that would be. Um, because I don't think it contributed in any way to like the tone, like the feel of the book, like as far as like the fact that it goes from being really digressy to way less digressy later on. It doesn't, I can't think of why that would matter in the story. I will give a, a further um, uh, example of what, what I think you're talking about. Um, and I was going to pull it up, but I, I opted not to because 
I, something else came up on my screen that I want to remember to talk about. So I'm going to leave that up. Um, the I believe it's the second chapter. It says something like uh, a man killed himself by jumping off the bridge. But uh, but don't think about that. And it's hard not to think about it. Like when someone tells you not to think about cookies. Now, clearly you're thinking about. cookies. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes, it was told in. And you're right. It's odd because it feels like that happened um, mostly at the beginning, but always in the um, in like the interlude chapters. Like, I don't feel that that happened a lot when we were in the apartment. Right. And I, I might be wrong. Right. Because, and I, and it, I think it's because characters are interacting with each other as opposed to the narrator telling you about a character. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but yeah, man, whoo, buddy. That was rough for right. me. What, what else you got? Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but um, I think that what I will say, and we can cut this if necessary, but if I'm saying that and you heard me say that as a listener, we didn't have to cut it. Um, I feel like there was a preponderance of coincidences in a way that took me out of like there, it begged for more of a suspension of disbelief than I felt I was willing to, uh, kind of you know, have. So Rob and I took it offline, so we could talk about the coincidences. And and there was actually um, an extra coincidence or two that I did not, although I knew they happened, didn't think of them as coincidences. Um, so I would like to say that I do see Rob's point in that as well. Yeah. And so overall, though, like, I guess I'd like to reinforce that um, I, I I acknowledge that it's a it's a well constructed story and um, it is a it's a it's a and it's a story that's going to hit you in the feels. Um, it just didn't do it for me. I'm going to tell you right now what it felt like to me. Um, have you seen the movie Love Actually? Um, never all the way through, but I, I've probably seen all of it in parts and then like slept through other parts, like that kind of thing. So yes, I, I, yep. (laughs) It kind of felt like that where it was like the, all of the kind of, um, this, the, this, the threads were created so that it could give you the big ending as opposed to, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. as opposed to the ending is a result of all the crazy shit that happened. It was like this, I know this is where it's going to all wrap up. So how do I get everybody in the place I need them to be? That was like my impression of, and maybe I'm just like a cynic or like a cynical person or like I, my heart is too cold for it. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I, here's, here's the fucked up part about this. I, because of the, the two books that I, um, I audio booked, um, had a feeling like, like I got it. Like I get what this guy does. Right. And, and, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed both of those audiobooks. So I had a feeling I, I kind of knew what to expect from this one. And, and, and it, it yeah, it, it, it falls in line. I mean, it's not a very similar story, but the, the type of like relationship stuff, and like you said, the feels, those are all present. Like they are in the other two um, books of his that I'm familiar with. So I don't want to say that, this is like a weird inverted situation, but I kind of expected you to cry like a little bitch reading this book. And um, I think the average person, had I not have said that I'm already familiar with it and that there was my 
like idea, like I really wanted to read this book, would probably be surprised that the heartwarming story that we heard appealed more to me than it does to you. Yeah, that's uh that's a really good point. Uh <laughs> but I think that I think that proves that you have like a conventional like heart and soul. And I think mine is more like um you know like how like Frankenstein's monster probably cried like when he first was reanimated. Mm-hmm. That's that's more like how I think my heart works. Who hurt you, bro? Let's I- talk about this. <laughs> Who hurt you? <laughs> Um, but yeah, like, uh, and again, I'm going to go back to acknowledge. Um, I would say that this is one of those books that is, is a wide audience, like practically anybody could pick it up and appreciate it. And they would, they'd, they'd read it and they'd really like it. Um, I think I'm the, um, the outlier on this one. Can we, um, can we talk about translation? Yes. Yes. I have one specific point about the translation. Um, but I, I don't know if you have anything um, else, but did you notice an insane amount of exclamation points in this book? <laughs> um, I did. I did. I didn't. Um, but uh, I, I know that there's a statistic coming up here. So. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't stand out to you. Like, um, like if someone and I, what what I what I think what I even early on I was like oh well it must be this um, I think that there has to be some sort of expressive thing in Swedish that doesn't readily translate to English and so it had to be represented somehow and I think the exclamation point was the way to do that but like if I was introducing myself in an enthusiastic way I'd be like I'm Rob but like it was I'm Rob with an exclamation point instead yeah. of like. I'm Rob, he said enthusiastically, or something like that. I, uh, I, you're, you're probably right, and and I didn't notice, um, I didn't notice the exclamation points, but I, um, one of the things, so you and I had exchanged some messages, and I got the you talked about the way it was written, so of course that became that became, that was part of my psyche while I was reading the rest right. of it. I think I was paying more attention, and the fact that the characters are so emotive. Yeah, um, did strike me. So everything is kind of like a like a, a little overly dramatic, right? So I, I think I noticed that, but I don't think I noticed that the exclamation point was the reason I was thinking that. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, for the listeners who are dying to hear, um, there are five hundred thirty-eight exclamation points in this book. That's I think three hundred fifty something pages. <laughs> so that's more than one per page. Um, <laughs> hold on a second. Exclamation points <laughs> are to anxious people as chapters are to ink by Jonathan. <laughs> it's the same amount. Oh my God. That's it's both, right? That's That's, that's a good point. Um, and I, it just, just as like a, a touch point, I looked at, uh, another book we read this year, um, to see how many exclamation points that had. And I chose, um, how quickly she disappears, which was that a book that took place in Alaska we read earlier in the year. Um, there's less than twenty in the entire book, <laughs> so uh, I just did that at random. But um, this one has 538, and it has to be, it has to be attributed to the fact that like somewhere in translation, there's there's a feeling that can't be otherwise expressed. Is is the only thing I can 
I can attribute it to because I don't think that the author is like, uh, because this is like, this is 50 shades of gray level of exclamation points. I don't know if you remember. Yes. I but do. yeah. So, um, but overall, um, aside from that, I feel like it was a really approachable book. It didn't feel like we've read other um, Scandinavian books. Like if you read the millennium trilogy, the mm-hmm. girl with the dragon tattoo books, that's, it's a lot denser and it's a lot slower. And this one is actually pretty airy and light. So um, I think other than the exclamation points, I felt like it was a really easy read. Yeah. I don't think anyone's going to find getting through the book challenging at all. Um, which is probably why he's a number one New York Times bestseller. I mean, yeah, the difficult books don't typically achieve that level of, of success, at least in, in my experience. So, Unless they're amazing. Unless, well, yeah, all right. So what's a really complicated book that was number one on the New York Times bestseller list? I mean, I'd be I mean, surprised if Girl with a Dragon Tattoo didn't make it to the New York Times bestseller ooh, list. That's interesting. Number one, though? Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> it was a really big book. Now I need to know. Debuted at number four on the New York Times bestseller list. Oof. Um, I don't know if it went higher than that. It debuted at number four. That's all. Yeah, I I, I've seen the word New York Times bestseller next to it, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. All right, we should probably go into wrap ups. Then we should talk about why uh, why we've never read the continuing um, series of the the Millennium Trilogy. Uh, yeah. Um, how about I go first with the wrap ups? Yes, I think I think I think I would feel better <laughs> if you did that. I'm going to reiterate that um, it is. So I'm going to say the good stuff right up front. So um, everything else seems like oh well, he liked it plus negatives uh i feel like um i will acknowledge that his understanding of human nature did create very interesting characters and characters that were good to read um i think that um that was definitely a strength of it his his storytelling technique while i didn't like the weird tangenty kind of thing that i mentioned earlier um, toward the beginning of the book, that smoothed out as the story kind of congealed because I think at the beginning there was an intentional vagueness that um, that it was almost like a, mag- a magician who is like doing misdirection. Um, so at the beginning, I feel like there is a necessary amount of not necessarily confusion, but just like <clears throat> a lack of solid information that um, as the story reveals itself becomes more focused over time. Um, and that's how I'm going to choose to, to, you know, think that, you know, that's why he would have done something like that. It makes sense to me. So, um, outside of talking to this dude, I'm going to guess that's kind of like the, one of the reasons for that weird, uh, tangent slash digression thing that, that I didn't really care for. Um, great at writing characters. Like I said, the story comes together very well. Um, it, it has a lot of disparate elements that, that come together into, um, a really focal kind of um, very intentional ending. And that's why I said I feel like that the ending was more important than the story that got us to the ending. Um, overall, like I said, everybody who reads this is going to love it. 
there were just elements of it that I didn't care for, or this weren't my, my level of storytelling. And if I'm being real honest, um, this is, I like a book that makes you work that like you're, you're, you're going through the motions of trying to figure out what's happening and why, whereas this book doesn't necessarily challenge you that way. It just makes you wait to tell you what happened. So, um, while it is a book that is, is kind of a mystery or a whodunit or how did they do it or whatever type of story, you don't have to worry about needing to have paid attention. It really just tells you eventually, um, is, is the feeling I have about it. And so, um, I felt like I would have, I would have cared more about the story if like it was important to look at the individual pieces to understand what happens at the end. And I feel like I didn't get that. Um, so overall I acknowledge the good parts of the book were, um, I think the characters were one of the stronger points. The plot absolutely was one of the, the bigger focuses for, for what the author was good at. And the conclusion was absolutely the focus of the book. Um, it all came together in a very, very elaborate way where the pieces all fit very, very neatly and tidily together. Um, but it was just, it missed the mark for me. So, um, some of the other stuff like pace and narrative and language really kind of missed for me. And I didn't really care for the tone either. So overall I'm giving this six and a half out of 10, which is just to note, it is the lowest score I've given to, um, any of the 32 now 32 books that we've read this year. I, <sighs> I feel a little differently about it. Um, I, although I think there was a mystery element to it. I mean, this is really a book about relationships and then ultimately um, a feel good book, right? So about repairing relationships about, um, you know, kind of mending fences and like the relationships between people and, there are books you read for the story. Um, and, and this one, although there was a story and yes, I was guessing at different things and trying to predict the outcome through the course of the book. I feel like I could have just as easily read the same book and had the same level of enjoyment. If this was, uh, you know, whatever people stranded somewhere like the story didn't, didn't matter as much to me as the interaction between these characters and the characters were very frequently characters of people. Um, but I don't know that that impacted um, my feelings about how these people felt about each other or their understanding of themselves or their understanding of, in, in most cases, their significant others, as there are a lot of kind of, there's a couple of couples, there's potential couples, it's father and son, right? So you've got all this stuff going on. Um, yeah, this is outside the norm for um, what we do and, and really kind of outside the norm for what I enjoy reading on my own. And as I mentioned, I listen to two audiobooks. Um, this probably would have gotten a slightly higher score from me, but I was definitely judging these against his other books. And um, I will say that uh, if this is the kind of book you like, um, you should uh, and, and you're only going to give Frederick Bachman one shot. Go for uh, my grandmother asked me to tell you she's sorry. It's an amazingly, wonderfully written book. Um, but uh, I, I, would, I would put this not too far from there. So uh, I really enjoyed it. I teared up a few times. 
I'm going to be honest, in my own personal reading, I will probably go ahead and either audiobook or catch up with all of Frederick Bachman's books. Um, I had a little bit of a concern that maybe I just really liked the audio narration. I was worried about how I'd feel about reading it myself. Um, it did not disappoint um, for me and came in at an 8.38, which brings the total for the podcast uh, score to 7.4375. Some good points there, for sure. Yep. Um, so we won't be doing any more Frederick Bachman books. I'm free to read all the other ones on my <laughs> own. Is that, is that what you're telling me? I, I mean, like, we'll see. I won't be like. That's gonna be you. You got to dangle it at the right time. Like we're we're like hopelessly like clicking through like list after list of books trying to find something, and then you're like, well, by the way. I want you to know that I spared both you and the listeners, I believe, 21 quotes from this book. What? Yes. Oh, did I think I quote it's 21. Anything? Probably not. I and if you know. did, it was probably in a negative manner. Yeah, go, oh, this so, motherfucker. While you're looking, you know, you mentioned um, translation. And uh, I, I found it interesting that here we buy condos, but I'm guessing that. Or you buy an apartment, which is exactly the same thing. Right. Yeah, I think it's... Yeah. um. Yeah. Yeah, that's where... I didn't even think about that, but you're right. Um, and then the cashless banks. I'm going to assume... If I look up cashless banks, I'll find out that... Cashless banks may not even be a thing. I just googled cashless banks, and I found cashless society. What does a cashless society look like? Oh, here, the rise of cash... Banks and what to do about it from uh, from in May. Um, Canada, Ireland, Australia, Denmark, and Sweden are closing full-service branches and adopting less-staffed cashless banks model. Where does the cash go? Like, where do you get cash from then? I mean, obviously, like, eventually cash is just going to be like an antiquated... It's probably already, like, on its way to antiquated, but, like, cash has to come from somewhere. I'm guessing those banks, like, they're really only there for you maybe to, like, deposit a check. Yeah. And, like, to get a loan, right? Like, to get a car loan or, or to, to uh, maybe set up an investment account or, or something, you know, where yeah. they, you know, you auto from, you know, they auto deduct from your paycheck, like, 100 bucks every paycheck into a, you know, mutual fund or something. Safety deposit boxes? That's an even weirder one, man. Like people go somewhere to lot like they have something that they can't possibly lock up in their home. I, I don't I never really understood. <laughs> I mean, I understand what it is. I just never really understood the people that basically well, pay for real estate, which is like a shoebox somewhere else. There has to be a level of insurance that you can't get from like a homeowner's insurance, I'm guessing. Like the the security is not necessarily the physical security, but also like the the like the backup. Of it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that might be it. Yeah, or just people are fucking weird. Yes, I'm going to go with that. People are weird. What can you do? So I, um, through a series of unfortunate circumstances, I did not read this on the Kindle. Um, I read this <laughs> in the iBooks app, um, which I have not done ever. But um, here's the funny part. Um, we decided to do this book. I, <laughs> I had my iPad with me, but not my Kindle. So it, it didn't occur to me that I could use the Kindle software on the iPad. 
because <laughs> That's I have funny. a Kindle, so I don't have like the Kindle software installed on the iPad. You know what I mean? Like it just didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't correlate. So, um, but I discovered, and and I know I told Rob this, but I have to um, change my mind because I've had this book open on the iPad the whole time. Um, so I, I misspoke when I told you originally. iBooks thinks now. <laughs> I'm sure it's just the default. It's probably the lowest setting. But I was shocked to find out that like eight pages into this book, I got a notification saying that I'd met my reading goal for the day. And and I messaged Rob and I said, <laughs> apparently iBooks, because I assume I, I read like a page a minute. Like if I have a 300 page book, I kind of set aside six hours of reading, right? Or five hours of reading rather. Um, so I assume there was like eight or 10 minutes while I had it open, just in the, you know, with the quotes highlighted and stuff, it popped up at the five minute mark. So the default setting on iBooks <laughs> is that you have reached your goal if you have read five minutes a day. This is akin to, to getting your uh, getting a smartwatch. And like you took 100 steps today and it's like, congratulations. Nice job, man. Good job getting to 100 steps. <laughs> All right. So I, I can I can hit you with a little I didn't know how the goal thing worked really before we started talking about this. I knew about it, but I never really investigated it. The default, this is going to make total sense when I tell you what the default goal reading goal is. It's three books per year. That's the default. And then you can change it to how many books you want to read in a year. I'm hmm. so I'm so five minutes (laughs) times 365 days. Right, assuming you read every day, like it's a daily goal. Yeah. Don't forget to divide that by 60 to get hours. Yeah, divided by 60. So I'm trying to use a, a calculator inside a web browser. Um, is 30 hours, which gives it's you 10, 10 hours, hours a book. Yeah. 10 hours a book. All right. <clears throat> That's. For the person whose goal is three books a year, that's. Like that's realistic, I'd say. And I know we had this conversation before. How many books does the average person read a year? I'm guessing three, based on. Uh, well, that's the iBooks yeah. goal. The problem with that is, though, that you and I, like, we make up for a shit ton of people that read zero books, right? Because we're yeah. just for the podcast, thirty-two, right? So outside the podcast, we're probably like what thirty-five, thirty-seven each. Right. According to the Pew Research Center. The average person in the U.S. reads about 12 books a year. All right, I'm going to Yahoo Answers because that's where I always see the coolest stuff. I can't believe Yahoo Answers is still a thing. How many books does a person read on average? Oh, it just took me to a bunch of ads. That's weird. Yahoo took you to ads. Shocking. You think that's how they make their money? All right, let's let's see. Okay, while you're looking, the average number of books each person read over the course of a year was 12, but that number is inflated by the most avid readers, which would be us and above, I would say, right? The most frequently reported number was four books per year. Okay. So, like, three would count for the zeros and, like, the 50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would say three is an under... is a is a... Is a um, believable average. 
So this is interesting. Now, this is back from 2015, but it says women tend to read more than men. About 77% of American women read a book in 2015. I think they mean a book or more. Compared with 67% of American guys. Also, the average woman read 14 books in a 12-month span, while the average man only read nine. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, women are by far the bigger readers. Sure. I just, it's weird. And, and I guess, you know, whatever. I guess it depends on the company you keep. But I'm pretty sure that, like, at work, my group of, of people I work with, I think maybe two of them have, have been likely to read a book in the last year. Yeah. That's, and honestly, like, uh, well, and, and we're, like, just going by the people who, like, we either notice or talk to about books. But, like, mm-hmm. um, so the person I'm dating right now reads easily way more than I do. Um, and there was a person I worked with who um this this girl I worked with who she she doesn't work with me anymore but I was talking to her at work one day and she was saying how you know I think my goal this year for books is going to be 60 and I was like Jesus <laughs> so and that was just so uh but you always see those statistics and honestly like I I'd, I'd like to see library information like I feel like libraries would be a really good source of like um like repeat readers like, you know, the people who, like, make a conscious effort to make reading part of their lives. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see, like, the the statistical breakdown of, in, in a library setting. Because I'd imagine that the women are just dominating in, in that setting, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, there's, yeah, there's probably some interesting stuff there. Because a library might be, maybe, your truest and you said only like on a repeat basis, right? Because if you're coming in there once a week or once every two weeks, you know, you're taking out three books and then returning them, you have to assume that you're reading, you know, one to three of those books because there are other people and, and there are a lot of readers who buy books and never read them. Yeah. Right. There's, there's everybody on Instagram with their to be read pile. And if you, if you go back a year, the to be read pile is the exact same books, but there's like two more new ones on top of it. Yeah. Yep. So, and, I don't know, maybe digital. Like, are people who buy a book on Kindle more likely to read? Because that's an immediate thing, right? Like, I would think you sit down at your Kindle, you go and you buy a book, you probably start reading it. Unlike you're in a bookstore, you buy eight books, and, like, you go home and put on Netflix and never look at them again. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah, it'd be interesting to to get some real... Because I never really, I hadn't really thought about it too much before we just started talking about it. I knew that there was a general thought that like the majority of of books are read by women, like more books are read by women than men, that type of thing. But I didn't mm-hmm. didn't really put too much thought into it. I just knew that was generally the case. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to know. It would be interesting to know more on that. I would imagine too that if you could look at data, the more the internet is used, I'll bet you the less books are read. I gotta say though, like based on our Patreon, I think that we get more female Patreon supporters than men. That's a good point. So even in our little very small subset of, of people, like I think our listeners are more more male than female though. So Hmm. Yeah. So you're saying not only are women smarter, but they're more generous? I I mean the sta- the statistics I- 
yeah. bear, bear out. I mean, <laughs> I think that we should. I think we should do a study where we find out if more women will join our Patreon, so that we can decide that they are oh, not only smarter, uh... but more generous. <laughs> I like the way you think. <laughs> mm-hmm. so. There you go. <laughs> hey, one more thing that uh, that came up uh, today that I'm a little confused about. So, um, Rob sent me an article today. And uh, that article was entitled, give me a second, I forgot that I looked up other stuff. Clive Barker regains U.S. Hellraiser rights after court battle. So I want to do a little more research into this, but um, I looked at this article and I thought, well, that's weird. Because somebody has the rights to Hellraiser because and 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 they're in good standing with Clyde Barker because back in October an article dropped saying that Clyde Barker had signed on to be the producer for a Hellraiser TV show for HBO which of course I was clearly very excited about I think we might have mentioned it on the on the Halloween episode when we were talking about Books of Blood too it was right in that time frame so I was surprised to find out that you know like somebody the Clyde Barker was involved in a court battle with had um the rights or the u.s rights at least to hellraiser like it was just like a weird thing to and i don't know how any of these legalese shit works i mean we know clyde barker wrote a book with pinhead in it a few years ago three years ago maybe we reviewed it oh yeah scarlet gospels yeah so he apparently owned the rights to the character if he could continue to write books so maybe just the film rights and i mean Maybe TV rights are different than film rights, and HBO is a TV channel, right? Like, I don't know. It's just, it gets really, really weird. Yeah. Um, I don't know how any of that works, but it did mention the... Did, I feel like we we brushed up against, but didn't really get deep into the whole, like, Friday the 13th franchise rights kind of dispute thing that was going on. Um, because I had heard or read somewhere that Friday the 13th was, like, dead in the water, and it was mostly because... Of, of rights disputes and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. But I did actually rewatch the latest Friday the 13th reboot movie. Mm-hmm. And it is just unremarkable. Um, it's, it's like a very, it's like if someone wrote a slasher movie because they liked Friday the 13th <laughs> instead of it being like, yeah. A Friday the Thirteenth movie, but there was like tons of nudity, and I was like, "Oh, well, at least there's well, that's that." That's traditional. Yeah, there you yeah. go. So that, um, the other thing that that came up from this article that that I found um interesting is the law allows authors to recapture rights from publishers after waiting a certain amount of time, typically around thirty five years. Yeah. So not only is that very oddly worded. But it also weirded me out a little bit. I'm like, Hellraiser really came out 35 years ago? Oh, that yeah. Made me, that made me feel old. Well, you are old. Uh, yeah, so. but it made me feel old. Oh, yeah. So being oh, yeah. old and feeling old are two completely <laughs> different things. So, um, But yeah, that was, uh, that was a little... But just the way it's worded. Uh, recapture rights after waiting a certain amount of time, typically around 35 years. I will bet you that that law is written a little more specifically than that. Well, uh, and contract. So like Alan Moore, the the comic book artist is the one who um, comes to mind as being like, like profoundly screwed by DC comics with um, Watchmen. um, Where basically the contract was written in a way where 
the rights would revert to him after the comic went out of print. And so they've just never sent it out of print. Wow. So there's things like that where like the wording of a contract, I think can supersede like the general copyright laws. It just, yeah. Yes. And I, I would, I would imagine that's the case. It, it becomes this thing and it's tough, right? So I, I'm not, I'm not terribly familiar with the Watchmen. I saw the movie, whatever, 15 years ago or whatever, when it came out and didn't, you know, it was okay. Didn't really feel one way or the other about it. I mean, I know a lot about DC comics because, you know, as a kid growing up that, that was, that was the the big thing. But these deals where they, at least from, from a fan's point of view, it always feels like the company that wants your money is screwing the creators that you love. And it's a weird relationship to have, right? Yep. Like, again, I'm not a super DC fan, but, you know, I am a Clyde Barker fan. So, you know, this whoever had the rights. It was uh, Park Avenue Entertainment. I don't know if they made the last Hellraiser movie, but I actually really, really liked it. But then to find out that they were trying to fuck Clyde Barker makes me feel bad, like negative feelings towards a company that made a movie that I liked that probably wanted to make another movie that I would like so that I would spend more money with them. It's, it's a really weird relationship that, that creators have to publishers slash producers and how that like comes off to the actual fans, the, the, the people that create the wealth, hopefully for both of those groups. Yeah. I, it's funny that this is the conversation we're having because I saw, either on social media or Reddit recently, someone had done like a, an analysis of um, music contracts, like record contracts and about how like there are people that are hired specifically to write record contracts in a way that like the rights never revert back to the creator. Um, But also they, they kind of broke down and it was something insane and I'm going to get the, the amount wrong, but this illustrates the point. They, it was something along the lines of for like every thousand dollars that the record company makes, and this is just a generic in general kind of thing, the the uh, the artist gets like like a little under $25 or something. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. like, it, it at what point does the, the system um, that gives you access to the audience actually become a barrier to Mm -hmm. creation because like you basically have to sign away everything just to get the exposure that this company will get you, but they take everything for it. And it's like, yeah, they're the, those, yeah, it's fucked up. Man, that's been going on for years. I know that uh, Prince God rest his soul was, was going through, through stuff like that. And then eventually was trying to like, just release stuff himself more recently. I listened to an interview with Kanye, Kanye West and he had gone the same route basically because he was tired of, you know, getting the the screwing from the record companies. And then there's a whole, you know, if we knew someone who worked for the record company, they'd be like, bro, you don't fucking understand how much money we have to put into this shit. Like, you know, and and I get it. Um, I was recently listening to someone talk about a publisher and they were saying how the success of one author is how they're able to bring us a lot of the other stuff. Because a lot of the other stuff doesn't make a whole lot of money. So, i.e., you know, James Patterson, for example, makes enough for that publisher that they can bring us those kind of the the people who never 
never hit the New York Times bestseller list, but mm-hmm. we still enjoy their books. And those books aren't terribly profitable, but they can afford to do that because James Patterson, and this isn't the interview I heard, but you get you get what I'm saying, right? right? Yeah. But that's kind of bullshit, too, because like they also decide to put all of their um, marketing money behind those big people instead of marketing other people or to other audiences. So like... Yeah you're also kind of creating the situation you're, you're creating the shit that you're sitting in basically. Um, so that's, I mean, it is a valid argument, but it's also kind of half of the story I, I feel, or at least not yeah. the entire story. Well, that's the beauty of the internet, right? We have seen people who have um, created their own success. Um, not that I could think of one right now, <laughs> but you know, people, people <laughs> yeah. have self-published books and, and, and made, you know, a small fortune and, and they're musicians um, that do that exclusively through um, YouTube and what's what's the other one that's really big for um, for musicians to audio? I don't Spotify? remember what it's called. Wait, are we? No, no. There's another like video slash audio site. At any rate, oh, like Vimeo. Yeah, Vimeo, and then there's a Bandcamp. Bandcamp. Oh yeah, Bandcamp is. That's yeah, Band, that's the one I was thinking of. I, I yeah. thought Bandcamp, and then I thought, no, I think that's just Apple software. So I was, wasn't it's, sure I got the right. But <laughs> it's GarageBand. But I like the way you're yeah. thinking. Yeah, that's um, that's kind of you know. So there are some people who have who have made themselves moderately successful right. uh, and perhaps happier in not having to deal with shit like wondering if they're ever going to get the rights back to to their, you know, to to their creation. Um. All I'm saying is if a major podcast label comes around and offers us the deal with the devil. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, lifetime, I feel like lifetime rights. this is me telling you right now, you, you don't have to check with me first. <laughs> Make that deal. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. And that's it, OK. So that, that brings up the other <laughs> interesting point, right? Like how many of these people willingly sign that deal? And then later we're like, well, now that I'm fucking successful and I could, you know, have even more money. Now I'm not happy about that deal. And would we have ever heard of these people, some yeah. of these people, if if they didn't make that deal? So it's it's tough, man. But it is nice that there's now an outlet because, you know, what? 30 years ago, there was no outlet to self-publish and get your book into bookstores or your music onto a radio station like that just didn't exist. And yeah. I know somebody's probably thinking of, you know, one particular case where it did. I'm just saying, by and large, we, we have the tools now if you're ambitious enough and talented enough that, that you could probably go it on your own. Yeah. Or there's always American Idol. So if you want to. Yeah, it is. There is. That's the problem. There is always American Idol. <laughs> How is that show not fucking died? Oh, my God. It's in like Jesus season Christ. 20 something or something. At least, at least season 20 something. Any rate, anything else on your mind tonight, buddy? Um, Just thinking about next week, we have another book, which is exciting. And um, it's, uh, it's, we're back to Les Edgerton, who um, I keep thinking about um, now that we're, I mean, though we're talking about big publishers and stuff. I think one of the things that we had a conversation with him about the book Bomb which is a great book and we, we both enjoyed it and how it originally was placed at, um, I want to say random house just because, you know, probably in a year or so, that's all that's going to be left anyway. Um, and then like the leadership, like the management changed and he just lost mm-hmm. his deal. And it's like, even if you're in like your grasp at like legitimacy is so tenuous because like you're at the whim of the executives who decide whether they want you or not. So 
Um, but anyway, that's some depressing shit. Very excited to read um, Les Edgerton's new book, which is coming out next week. Yeah, and uh, I said it last week. I'm going to say it again. I think we're going to try to get Les on because he is um, one of my favorite guests. It's always a good time talking to Les. So we'll see if he can uh, join us. Uh, maybe not necessarily on that episode. Maybe we'll throw a little bonus episode your way where we get Les Edgerton to talk to us about Hard Times, his newest book, which is out uh, December 8th. So just a week from today. Yep. And we're going to be uh, just kind of a, a snapshot of the rest of the year. Uh, we're, we're going to be working really hard to hit a goal. <laughs> so I don't think that Les's book is going to be the last book that we talk about this year, but we also have our annual holiday episode with, um, Jesse and Misty joining us. So, um, that'll be on the horizon too. Um, maybe we'll push back our, um, year in review a little bit just so that we can get another book in under the wire so that we can hit our goal for the year. But, uh, yeah, so there's still tons of stuff coming up, the, uh, in 2020. I'm going to lobby that we don't even do a year in review since I now know what your lowest rated book of the year is. <laughs> Unless you squeeze in like one more real stinker. Oh, yeah. There's got to be. Is uh, Stephanie Meyer have anything? Well, she had that Midnight weekend? Sun book, but I don't know if I want to read. I saw. Can I, I, I know we're going, but I saw. I did not click on this fucking headline, but get this headline. It said, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to quote. Stephanie Myers threatens two more books was the, was the <laughs> fucking headline. Oh, that's perfect. That's so good. Uh, so at any rate, <laughs> thank you. Um, thanks for listening. Um, as always, we do this because you guys listen. So we appreciate you. Until next time, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. <laughs>